Subject we're looking at tonight, I haven't spoken directly on for way too long. And uh, it's such an important topic. I'm going to talk about it more, introducing some things as we work our way through the teaching. I want to talk to you about the sanctifying power of a good memory when we come to the Lord's table. The sanctifying power of a good memory when we come to the Lord's table. I'm going to read from the communion text, but longer, both before and after, than we typically read. I don't always read it during a communion service. We frequently do. I would never read this whole text, but I want to study it with you tonight. 1 Corinthians 11, hope you have a Bible, 17 to 34. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, there's some things they're doing well, some things they're doing very poorly. There's a bit of a lecture in here. But in giving this, this, this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Just pause there and think about what you just read. Here's people. It's a church. He's going to talk to them about their gathering for the Lord's Supper as per Jesus' instructions. Paul says he got it from the Lord. Think about what he just said there. He said, you're coming together to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever terminology you want to use. I'm I'm not worried about that. You're coming together to celebrate it. And here's what he says. You're doing it in such a way. You were godlier before you came to the Lord's table than you were after you came to the Lord's table. Did you see that? You come together, not for the better, but for the worse. You're worse off. So something's wrong here. I think we can all agree something's wrong here. If they're coming together at the Lord's table and they're less godly after partaking than before they started, we got to figure out what's the matter. That's what we're going to be looking at a little bit tonight. 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. It has nothing to do with Jesus, he says. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and others drunk. What? (laughs) Can't hear Paul. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or you do you do you despise the church of God? And I'm sure they'd say no. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Now, here's where we usually read. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now, after lecturing them, here's where this comes from, he says. And when he had given thanks, 24, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance. Now we're talking about memory. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Not revised, not altered, not expanded, not improved. Brand new covenant. Old one, done. Everybody see that? Hebrew says the old covenant's obsolete. That's the very word used in the text. In the same way he took the cup, 25, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance. There it is again, memory. In remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread, drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death. I want to talk about that, proclaiming the Lord's death. It's a phrase that it's easy to read and it's hard to interpret. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now the warning, 27, therefore whoever eats bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Wow. 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Go ahead. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. The body is not the body on the tree. The body is this body. When they come together as a church, this body. You're not discerning this body rightly. 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. It's a very polite way of saying they've died. But if we judged ourselves, here's the way it's supposed to work. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So there you go. What a text. What should happen? Last Sunday night we did this. We usually do it, sometimes not in the middle of the summer. We don't do it twice a month. But usually our church does it more than most churches in that we would do it twice a month. Usually on a Sunday morning, usually on a Sunday night with some exceptions. So what should happen and I say should, in like the teaching of that false doctrine of transubstantiation, Roman Catholicism, where the elements become literally the body and blood of the Lord. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. So I don't mean that. But what should happen in the sense of what happens that isn't automatic? What What's supposed to happen that would be conditioned upon the faith and obedience of the participants? And I'm going to say, I want to look at three keys for transformation. When we come to the Lord's table, all of them kind of queued up with this idea of remembrance. And let me just, I need to just give a bit of a, uh, an explanation there. When I talk about remembering at the table, it's more than just having memories, we all know what it's like to have memories. They just come flooding over your minds in leisure moments, pictures that are precious, events that are bring deep feelings, emotions get stirred, sometimes without our effort. That's memories. I'm not talking about memories. I'm talking about the verb remembering. He's not talking about being invaded by memories. He's talking about remembering in the sense of calling events calling truths to remembrance. 
Not letting them slip from the thinking process when you come to the Lord's table. Remembering in that sense. Remembering the meaning. Thinking through that. 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same thing with the cup, 25. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So this is active, concentrated, uh, effort-required remembering. And it's important for a reason. It's important because this is what initiates miracles in our lives when we come to the Lord's table. So we're going to look at three miracles, three wonderful transformations, and they all include this element of remembering. All right, point number one. As we come to the Lord's table, we remember the second coming of Jesus. We remember it in a way that orders the priorities of the days of our lives. It's in verse 26. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until until he comes. So we come... The cup, the bread, they point in two directions, obviously, back to the foundation of our justification, Christ's atoning death, bearing God's wrath and my sin on the cross. So we look back, but that's not what he's talking about here. We look forward. We look forward to the second coming, the hope that lies before us, so we don't get discouraged, so we don't get distracted. Focus on the key point. Knowing about the second coming isn't what's being talked about in this passage at all. Most of us know about it. Remembering the second coming is what this text is talking about. Think of a husband who's out golfing. And suddenly he remembers he was supposed to take his wife to a doctor's appointment. And it's the remembering, he races to the golf cart, races to his car, races home. He remembers. Suddenly he remembers. And and remembering changes everything. See, that's the point I want to make there. It's the remembering that causes him to completely alter his plans for the moment. He might have been three under par. Doesn't matter. Oh, I remembered. Think of the student who's out socializing with his friends. Suddenly, oh, shoot, exam tomorrow. And he remembers. And he races home and gets the books out. You want a biblical image? Think of Peter denying Jesus, denying Jesus. And then he remembers. He hears that rooster. Oh, what Jesus said. And he remembers and his heart breaks. It's not just having a memory. It's remembering in a sense that changes everything. That's the difference between knowing about something and remembering it. Remembering Jesus' second coming is knowing about it in a way that feels the impact of it. 
If I can spend all my money on myself while the lost are perishing, I'm not remembering the second coming of Jesus. You get where this is going? If I can watch profanity-filled movies and listen to music that promotes a lifestyle that takes people to hell, then I'm not remembering the second. I know about it, but I'm not remembering it. If I can walk out of my marriage vows without a sense that my commitment to Jesus means I should stay and give restoration another chance, then I'm not remembering the second coming. If I can date an unsaved partner, usually with the false hope that I'll lead them to Jesus, I'm not remembering the second coming. I know about it, but I'm not thinking about it. If I'm a young person and I feel like I can ignore and disobey my parents and justify it by telling myself they're just out of touch, then I'm not remembering the second. You can make a list, right? You see what remembering does. Listen to how the Apostle John describes the purifying effects of remembering the coming of Jesus. It's in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, great verses. Beloved, now we are the children of God. But it's not just theology. They know it, but he wants them to remember it. It has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's all theology so far. Then look what he says. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Oh, I remember what this is all about. If you truly remember these things, when you come to the Lord's table, church, change comes, transformation comes. The transformation isn't in the elements. The transformation is in the heart of the partaker. Two, here's another kind of remembering. As we come to the Lord's table, we're called to remember, to examine our hearts for areas where fresh repentance is needed, to awaken spiritual life in areas long grown cold and dull. It's in verse 28. A man must examine himself. A man must examine himself. And a woman must examine herself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread, drink of the cup. Note the order. Examine himself. In so doing, while examining himself, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. So so while that wretched little wafer and stuff, you're peeling it open, if you're thinking about that, you're missing it. What I'm supposed to be doing, I'm supposed to be examining my heart like really examining my heart. No one is to come to the Lord's table without plowing up his or her heart with depth. So we look back at the accomplishments of the cross, we look ahead to the second coming and remember it daily, and then we look deep inside while we partake of the emblems. This call is crucial, self-examination. It means, it means, how can I put it? There are things that God could do at the Lord's table that won't get done 
because I didn't examine my heart. Okay? There's things that the Holy Spirit, miracles, inward miracles in my heart that could happen at the Lord's table that are not going to happen because I didn't examine my heart deeply enough. This is a huge issue. It's the second big kind of remembering. The work of the table is not an automatic work. This is the cause of much uh, kingdom transformation being left undone in my heart. Most of us look at our lives the way we look at an iceberg on the ocean. We quickly see a small portion of what's floating on the top. Most of the problem is under the surface. And that, that's, what, that's what Paul is saying. The, the things I'm likely to, did I tell a lie? Or did I lose my temper? Did I rob a bank? Um, that's the above the surface stuff. But underneath, am I, am, I, am I materialistic when I come to the Lord's table? Am I careless with my affections? When I come to the Lord's, the things I allow to fascinate me? Am I giving enough time serving in the body of Christ when I come to the Lord's? See, down there, down there. Psalm 19, this is good praying, 12 to 14. Who can discern his errors? This is not an easy job. That's what's being said there. Acquit me of hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, let it all be acceptable, O Lord, in your sight. That's what happens when you come to the Lord's table. Great, growing Christians remember self-examination. They don't assume things aren't too bad. They're, they're gracious with others. Here's, here's, here's spiritual Christians. They're gracious with others. They're thoroughly examining themselves. That's the difference. They're good at telling themselves the truth. This is the biggest kind of honesty. Telling ourselves the truth. We sing it. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. It's gloriously true. It's a good song. But here's what the song doesn't necessarily tell you. Mercy doesn't cover those sins automatically. Just because God's mercies are great and new every morning, God's mercies don't reach hidden, unconfessed sin. It's called repentance, right? I mean, Look at all the people out there in the world wandering all over the place. Christians, non-Christians, atheists. Are they all just covered by God's mercy? Well, no. Well, isn't his mercy big enough? Sure it is. What's the problem? If, if, if examining the heart now at the table to confess our sins, it's faithful, just, forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the second remembering. Three. So what I'm saying there, church, 
we turn ourselves inside out at the Lord's table. Three, remembering number three and miracle number three. As we come together at the Lord's table, the Holy Spirit wants to form the body of Christ in visible, self-proclaiming presence in this dark, divided world. It's in 17 to 22. I already read it. He says, 18, when they come together, there's divisions. They ignore each other's needs. This is nothing I can praise you about this. Challenging words. I didn't take time to read them all the way through. Some of the words carry a hard explanation, hard in the sense that we don't like them. And especially in recent years, the church has come up with a whole theological system to reinterpret those, and I'll explain that in a little while. But first, and most obviously, Paul deals with two forms of uh, practical dysfunctionality in the body of Christ. First, he says the people were being divisive among themselves, the first obvious thing. And the second thing he says is they were ignoring the needs of the poor. Basically, that's what he says, those two things. And the significant statement Paul makes after talking about those two blunders is that question in verse 22. To the church, he writes and says, do you, do you just despise the church of God? That's a little rough, isn't it? People who were coming to church, people who were coming to the services, people who knew the songs, they knew the routines, they knew what to say, when to say it. And Paul has to say, I, I know you're, you're doing all that, but do you inwardly, do you despise? Do you despise the church of Jesus Christ? 22, do you despise the church of God? So apparently, not everybody who comes to church loves the church of God. Not everyone who comes to the Lord's table loves the church of God. It's right there. The words are right there. It's not, I'm not making it up. What's more, according to Paul, there's more happening at the communion service than first meets the eye, and, and, and God judges it. 29 to 32. He who eats and drinks. Think about this. Talking about the elements. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Weak, sick, a number sleep. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged in these two areas that he's talking about now. Division in the body of Christ, ignoring those with needs. When we're judged, we're being disciplined by the Lord so we won't be condemned along with the world. What he says is, our Lord won't passively allow his body to be sinned against in these two ways. He won't. The Lord's table is so central as an expression of what the body of Christ is supposed to look like that the Holy Spirit can't stand to see that, that expression despised. He refuses to allow, it's not that he's loveless. It's that he refuses to allow people to sink deeper and deeper into divisive habits that can cost them eternity eventually. Paul says he doesn't, 32, doesn't want them to be condemned along with the world. I mean, we know the world's going to be judged when Jesus comes back. 
Jesus is the one that talks about that more than anyone else in the New Testament. More than Paul, Jesus talks about his coming judgment. But now he's talking to Christians. And all this has to do with a phrase. I'm almost done. The phrase is found in verse 26. And I said at the beginning I wanted to talk about it. Why are divisions so judged by the Lord? Why is a lack of concern for the needs of the poor and the needy, why is that so offensive? Why those two areas? Why does the Lord threaten judgment? And it has to do with this phrase in verse 26. The purpose of the church is to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Say that with me. Proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What does that mean? So we, 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 we participate in the death of Christ. We proclaim the Lord's death, and we participate in the death of Christ. Only, here's the thing, none of us is dead, right? We're all alive. So in what sense have we died with Christ? What are we proclaiming, demonstrating, showing about the Lord's death? Well, Here's how I participate in the death of Christ. I'm not physically dead, not yet. One day, not yet. I participate in the death of Christ in this sense. I have, just as Jesus died on the cross, I have died to my own rights. I have died to having to win every argument. I have died to carrying hurt feelings because somebody said something or did something that I didn't like, even if it was really their fault and really not my fault. We can all say that. But I'm proclaiming a death until Jesus comes back. What people are supposed to see is I have died with Christ in all of those self-defending mechanisms. And so the whole divisiveness, my selfish consumption instead of the needs of others. This, this, Paul says, and he says he got it from the Lord. This is portraying something about the Lord that isn't true. You proclaim the Lord's death in the way you respond to mistreatment. You proclaim the Lord's death in the sacrifice for the needs of another. And... The Lord takes it very seriously that the picture is an accurate picture. That we portray the body of Christ, not a fake Christ. It's a terrible sin, isn't it, to be misrepresenting someone. How long would the average communion service take if before we partook of the emblems every relationship in the body of Christ had to be fixed how long do you think we'd be sitting here on communion Sunday Paul says there proclaim the Lord's death till he comes 
Remember the second coming. Oh, man. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. 